Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 316, recorded August 31st, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 125. Security Now is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All stream directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you online. Yes, a show can do that. Well, it can if it's hosted by this fellow right here, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com, the man who discovered, coined the term, and created the first anti-spyware program. He's been so busy with his new passwords and encryption and technology. He's been teaching us how to use the Internet or what the Internet work does, how it works, on and on and on. Uh, but uh, it's it's time for our uh, semi-monthly uh, Q&A show, episode 125, Q&A. It, it occurs to me, Leo, that anyone who's hearing this from a, um, a recording will know the answer to this question. But I didn't ask you, so I just wanted to make sure that we, we are recording this. Yes. Okay. <laughs> no, it's not an inappropriate question. <laughs> uh, just, you know, normally check in just to make sure that, you, that it's not that the reels are spinning, but somewhere there's a hard drive whose head well, is me, Have I ever, have we for, ever forgotten to record this show? Oh, uh, yeah, we did it. We did it twice once, didn't we? we only had to redo a couple in the <laughs> 316 shows. So I'm not saying it's likely. Clearly, well, anyone listening to a recording already has the answer to the question. I am no uh, longer alone here, as you can see in our shot of the Twig Brick House. People are working hard, running around like crazy people, making sure that everything gets done. Well, they actually look like. They're, they're fast asleep, actually. You I know, hope. when I was there yeah, well, uh, last week, I didn't see a lot of rec- red, big red record buttons. Though. No. I would have felt a little more comfortable if there were some <laughs> red, big red record buttons. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's, so, uh, you know. it's, I think if you walked in here, uh, you know, just completely Ooh, um, very untutored, you would not know, A, that anything was going on, and B, you would not know how to make anything go on. <laughs> I, I used to know how to do everything here. And I no longer know how to know anything about how to do oh, anything. That, that spinning throne looks like the bridge of the Enterprise. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's yeah. phenomenal. That's our that, that uh, master control mass, unit. Yeah, well, they, yeah. They uh, we, we've we've looked for a good name for that. Have we decided, John, on a name for uh, for that yet? Yeah, what do we? I know that the person at the at the helm is called the technical director. And what is what do we call that master control suite? Well, it's the turret. It's the, 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 the the control column. With yeah, well, yeah, you have to include the stuff in the basement because really, the thing up, up up above, the thing that rotates, it's like an iceberg. You just see the little. It's tip just the of it tip, up, yeah, above the water. Yep. In fact, it's really basically control surfaces and display screens uh, that go that really go down to the basement where all the work is being done. Ah, oh, the basement is amazing. Yeah, I just love the yeah, basement. Yeah, it's fun. I'm, I, I have to say, I, I'm really happy <laughs> that we built this. It's just so cool. 
Uh, we're still, you know, we're still tweaking it. My office is the last to get kind of tweaked. You can see there's still wires lying around and stuff like that. But um, I just, I'm really happy here. I, I enjoy uh, work. I enjoy coming to work here. It is kind of peaceful in, yeah. a, in an unusual way. I guess because before we were just all jammed into one room together. Um, we're, we're, we're still working on, on the kinks. We're getting the kinks out. But I, I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah, so I'm we sure. have a lot of security news today. I know we've got questions and answers too. So let's... Let's get down to it. Let's get right to get it. right in. So under updates, which I always do first, technically everything <laughs> got updated that we care about. Firefox, Microsoft, and Chrome. Uh, and presumably there's something from Apple, although I haven't actually seen the notice yet. But there, it's all because of what is top of our security news that all of the manufacturers... And publishers of browsers have been scrambling around as fast as they could to to deal with something that's sort of related to the Komodo problem that we talked about before. Um, this is a Dutch SSL certificate authority called DigiNotar, D-I-G-I-N-O-T-A-R, who... For reasons that are still not quite clear, and I'm getting the sense that there's a little more to this story than as is public yet from looking at the source code to what Mozilla has done. It sort of leaks some information that, that we'll talk about. But what happened was a star.google.com certificate was found in the wild that had been signed by this relatively obscure i guess it's they're not obscure if you're if if you're dutch but you know they're obscure for us uh and certainly for google uh certificate authority DigiNotar. well DigiNotar has a collection of root certificates in all of our browsers there's a DigiNotar root CA, a DigiNotar cyber CA, a DigiNotar services 1024 CA. Those are root certificates in in across the board in Mozilla, in IE, in Chrome, in Safari, you know, in the mobile platforms. You know, it's one of the collection of some 600 certificate authorities who any of whom have the ability to sign any certificate, which is part of the reason that people are beginning to feel more and more that this whole this whole SSL TLS trust model, the, the, this this certificate authority anchored trust model, is becoming a bit rickety. And our li- our longtime listeners will remember probably with a grin the the show the the podcast you and I did, Leo, where I first in a decade looked at the list of certificate authorities in whatever browser I was using and I was stunned by the explosion of them. I remember back in the day there were seven. And now, I mean, and of course we had a lot of fun at the expense of the Hong Kong post office, but they're one of the people who are able to sign any certificate that they want to on the internet and all web browsers will trust it without asking any questions. So, so it's not the Hong Kong post office anymore. It's the Dutch post or whatever this is, <laughs> the Dutch the, post office. <laughs> and I guess it's sort of like a digital notary. So, 
So Microsoft posted their Microsoft little announcement, sort of in the standard Microsoft style, says Microsoft is aware of at least one fraudulent digital certificate issued by DigiNotar, a certificate, a certification authority present in the Trusted Root Certification Authority's store, meaning in Windows, on all supported releases of Microsoft Windows. Although this is not a vulnerability in a Microsoft product, Microsoft is taking action to protect customers. Microsoft has been able to confirm that one digital certificate affects all and this is a typo because I, I copied and pasted it. Anyway, they should have said affecting all subdomains. One digital certificate, I guess, I, I guess it's right as it is, affects all subdomains of Google.com because the certificate that was signed was star.google.com. And, and yeah, Oof. and may be used to spoof content, perform phishing attacks, or perform man-in-the-middle attacks against all web browser users including users of Internet Explorer. Microsoft is continuing to investigate how many more certificates have been fraudulently issued. As a precautionary measure, Microsoft has removed the DigiNotar root certificate from the Microsoft Certificate Trust list. So not so, so anything that DigiNotar signs, not just... Well, but I mean... Yes. But that's and this appropriate. Is a, Yes. Uh, well, this is the, how badly you get spanked these days. Yeah. If you're a certificate authority who screws up and and some well, through whatever means gets tricked into or do you think has that's what happened? That, that, that's, that, that some malware author tricked him into this. No one knows. Yeah. Um, there was some early con. There was some early unverified reports that Iran was using this certificate at their borders in order to spy on Iranian hmm. transiting traffic. But there was never any foundation for that. So, you know, I, I'm, as our listeners know, I'm really slow to buy into these things. Yeah. I mean, I was yeah. slow to buy into the fact that Stuxnet was targeted at the Iran nuclear program until it became very clear that we had the evidence to say that because it's just irresponsible to go off half-cocked. So Firefox, um, uh, Explorer, and Chrome have been updated uh, the chat room is pointing out, quite notably, what about Safari? I know. Now, as I, I, I think I recall that Safari on Windows uses the Windows certificate store. I don't okay. think Safari has its own, that is, the Safari on Windows. So Microsoft's removing it from the Windows Trusted Root Certificate Authority store would solve the problem for Safari. But Apple has been notably... Quiet. I did a search through Apple support for DigiNotar. Didn't find anything. I haven't seen any updates. There are if, – if people are worried, um, you can put in, you know, Mac OS X DigiNotar. And there are a number of blogs out on the net where people walk you through man, – the, the user – walk the user through manually disabling the DigiNotar certificate under um, – uh, Mac OS OS 10, you know, so it is possible for an end, end user to do it. My feeling is Apple must just be on the cusp of of releasing a fix to this, and and that all Macs will all get fixed very quickly. It's strange that they haven't because they've had a few days now, and everyone's running around like their hair's on fire because. 
this is potentially a problem. We just don't know where the certificate went. You know, like we we, we don't know how this happened and 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 you know who's using it and so forth. So um uh chromium's source a, a reading of chromium source and I a tip of the hat to Simon Zarafa who uh is frequently sending me goodies in my my Twitter stream and he sent me a bunch of links relative to this that made my search a lot easier. Um the the chromium source for Google's Chromium browser shows that those three trusted pre- previously trusted root certificates the DigiNotar root the DigiNotar cyber and the DigiNotar services 1024 all of those were certificate authorities they are now those their public keys are blacklisted in chromium and what's also really interesting is that there was a sudden jump and i mean sudden and huge jump in specific certificates which are blacklisted in chromium by their serial number. Serial numbers are all unique. There used to be a list of a blacklist of 10 certificates and they're ones we've talked about before that that were that were that were signed under a previously found to be fraudulent certificate authority. They're all blacklisted. So that there used to be 10. Now there's 257. Oh man. <laughs> So how did that happen? And and I I I was looking at a side by side before and after source compare and you know there's like there's these 10 and the same 10 and then this explosion another 247 in additional in addition so now there's a total of 257 specifically blacklisted certificates um that that chromium's source lists as no longer valid. And this is why I'm suggesting that there's a little more. This is one of the reasons I'm suggesting there's a little more to this story than we have heard yet. Um, and interestingly, um, I, I, I noted in the when I was looking at the source that those original 10, nine of those original 10 expire on March 14th, 2014, which reminds us why annoying as it is that certificates expire that is annoying for webmasters like myself and like you leo who are constantly having to renew the certificates that are that our servers have and and use the benefit of that on the other side is that blacklists don't have to remain in in place forever they only need to remain in place while the timestamp on the certificate would otherwise show that it's valid. So, for example, in this case, for those those older nine certificates that, that, that Chromium is currently, every copy of Chromium is carrying around with it, making sure that no one trusts those by mistake. Well, those all also have an expiration of March 14th, 2014. So on March 15th, 2014, and actually they'll probably wait a while because we want to make sure that, you know, clocks are, are correct. But what that does is that allows those to then be removed from the blacklist because the timestamp will show the certificate invalid and it's no longer necessary to like force it in the code on a per certificate basis. So, so that's sort of a, the upside of that. Now, Mozilla 
has taken a different approach. First of all, Firefox 6 just updated to 6.0.1 for this change. So, as a re- so you know, Microsoft yanked that out of their trusted root store. Mozilla that carries their own uh, trusted store in the in the browser, they updated from 6 from 6 to 6.0.1. In the code of this change, the the comment in the code says do not trust any DigiNotar issued certificates. Any, but they're doing well. They're doing something different. Then down in the down deeper in the code, it says examine the time window during which the fraudulent certs were believed to have been issued, and if DigiNotar root CA is within that window, the user cannot override. Otherwise, if DigiNotar warn the user but allow an override. So this tells us a few interesting things. This is that 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 someone there's been some dialogue somewhere between DigiNotar and Mozilla and that a window has been established during which this problem occurred and that this says also that there's reason to believe that more than just star.google.com got loose. Otherwise, all we'd have to do is blacklist that one serial number. Ooh. Instead, Chromium has blacklisted 247 serial Interesting. numbers. Interesting. And the and Mozilla's approach is off, off also a little softer because they're I mean, look at the problem that all all websites that have certificates signed by DigiDotar are no longer trusted. All there, there's even like a personal identity service. I can't quite remember the name of it now. That the Dutch have that, and DigiNotar was a signatory of of um, personally like, like personal certificates that that citizens were able to get. So those are all no longer trusted. I mean, this is a huge huh. disaster. For them, but Mozilla is softening it a little bit. If if it encounters a certificate outside of this undisclosed, well, I mean it's disclosed in the source code, but we don't know what the the real world implications are. But outside of this time window, then you'll be warned, but you you'll be able you'll be allowed to override, which is sort of nice. It means that Firefox will will conditionally trust certificates, which are probably almost certainly okay rather than just lowering the boom the way both Microsoft and and Google have chosen to do. So it's interesting because you know we we from from looking at the code we can't really tell what the story is, but we know that it's more than just star.google.com got loose. There's there's more story here. And it, it may be that there's just an embargo on the details until all of these browsers get pushed out and updated, and that once w- once we know that that we're going to be blocking certificates, there may be more information made available about exactly what it was that happened. But it, it does look pretty bad. Now, so did you, your sense is DigiNotar is kind of a, a a a reliable cert authority. It's not something weird out of nowhere. Yeah, they would never have made it into you know one of the gang of trusted roots if. If they weren't good, their site looks very nice. 
a little hard to read for me. Um, <laughs> Although but, that's uh, no way to measure the reliability of a company. <laughs> I know. As we know. But it just, it just has it, you know, they, they feel... They look professional. Like, yeah, and yeah. They're, oh, they're also heavily used by the government there. The Dutch government. So there, there's a oh, huge... Oh, that's interesting. Dutch, there's a huge impact to the Dutch government that has many wow. of, the, of their certificates signed by DigiNotar. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so these are not a, this is not a fly-by-night outfit this is so they got hacked or tricked we just don't know we don't i mean a trick it's it's uh, i would have to conclude with the very scant evidence we have and everyone needs to recognize it's very scant that that this is more of a hack because a trick would be one certificate a trick would be star.google.com whoops someone you know somehow managed to trick them into issuing that but for some reason chromium has has you know laid out a, a, a swath of certs that are being blacklisted, and Mozilla is saying we got a time window. So, you know, again, none of that fits the we tricked you into issuing a star.google.com certificate. It's probably going to turn out that something bad happened, and a, potentially a bunch of certificates were issued. And of course, did you know Notar knows? They would have provided this list to Chromium, for example. Right. They know which certificates would have been issued during that time unless the hack was more sophisticated than we would expect. So I think we'll be coming back to this and, and updating our listeners in a week or two with more information, probably that a, a bunch of certs got issued. Somebody in the chat room says they're a division of Vasco, which is a very large... They are a Vasco... Yes, they're, they're an international company. security company. So, and they're one of the big makers of the tokens. In fact, Vasco is the manufacturer that is often relabeled on all these little footballs that we talk about. People press and generate numbers. So, <laughs> so this, you know, it's not some DigiNote is not some you know out of nowhere, no, nowhere cert, cert authority. This is a biggie, right? Wow. And they have a nice looking website, Leo. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what I go on. That's really the only thing you need to ah, do. That's yeah, really validate that. Yeah, good color scheme. <laughs> so, uh, so I was I skipped over this the first time until so many people tweeted it. I thought, okay, well maybe it's of more import than I was originally thinking, and that is the news that Pakistan has sent notices to all of its ISPs, the Pakistani government to all the ISPs requiring them, the ISPs, to report any use of encrypted VPN traffic in within Pakistan, which says... Uh. So Pakistan is now formally banning VPN encryption technology. Um, uh, the, the quote said, all such mechanisms, including eVPNs, which they called encrypted virtual private networks, and of course you don't wouldn't you could have a virtual private network without encryption. You know, you, most people don't bother, but it's possible. So, non-encrypted VPNs are fine. Encrypted VPNs, which is like all of them uh, uh, going on, which conceal communication to the extent that prohibits monitoring, and that has now been banned by the Pakistani government. Um, all internet traffic in the country travels through the Pakistan Internet Exchange, 
which can be and is known to be intercepted by military and civil intelligence agencies. And of course, Pakistan said that this is in order for, to allow them to monitor terrorist activities. And somebody was quoted as saying uh, that that claim, uh, the claim that the move is about stemming terrorism is like banning cars because suicide bombers use them. So anyway, uh, it's you know not a good move, but uh, enough people thought that it was important. I mean, I guess I'm not that surprised. It's it's a it's a rough area to to have freedom of speech in anyway. So now there's less freedom than there used to be. Um, uh, last week, news popped up of a new worm which uses the remote desktop protocol. And what's interesting about it is it doesn't rely on any defects or bugs. It's able to function on fully patched Windows systems supporting um, the RDP, the remote desktop protocol. Um, the good news is several things. First of all, not that many systems are going to be or are going to have RDP out on the Internet. Uh, for example, Shields Up would tell you instantly if you had port 3389. It's one of the, the specific ports we check for because I've long known that it's a huge security risk for you to have port 3389 open, which is the RDP port. Um, the worm that gets that is spreading with RDP that just does a standard internet port scan of port 3389 and if it is able to establish a TCP connection, meaning that there is a listening RDP service at the IP that it has just scanned and found, then it it has a dictionary of logins. So it'll attempt to use you know uh, username and, and password login in order to access the server there and. If it's able to, then it essentially uses its access to the user's desktop to transfer a bunch of software across the link and run a copy of itself, which then takes off and begins finding, you know, uh, also scanning the Internet, looking for more copies. It also has bot technology built in so that it is a bot. And this was discovered due to a sudden rise in port 3389 internet traffic you know tcp sins were being sent out and we'll be talking about that next week when we discuss what the tcp protocol is tcp sin packets began they're like you know a much larger flurry than normal because instances of infected systems were out looking for more of them the reason this is not a huge concern is that first of all only servers typically have RDP installed and running. Hopefully, servers are behind their own firewall that wouldn't be making the, the remote desktop protocol public without intending to. The lower-end current Windows systems, you know, the uh, Windows 7 Home, for example, doesn't even have it. Um, Pro and, and above have it, but it's disabled by default. And... Anyone behind a router is protected by the router's inherent NAT layer, which would be ignoring incoming connection attempts, even if RDP was used behind the router on systems. So I don't think it's a huge 
warning. I did want to mention it because a number of our listeners had had noted it and wanted to know what this meant for them. It's probably not a big deal, but we do have a, a worm out on the net, and it is significant in that it's not exploiting any deficiencies. It's not displo- <laughs> exploiting problems. It's just working the way it's supposed to. It's just, nice? you know, someone <laughs> said, hey, let's just look to see if anybody's got are there, you know, their remote desktop protocol out and and with a dumb password that this thing is able to guess. So that's so, the key. Yeah. Have a good password and you're all right. Right. I wanted to give our listeners, the, the, today's Q&A is almost entirely about off the grid. It really captured our listeners' attention and imagination. I think because it's simple. I mean, I, I, it had to be simple to be usable, but everyone could easily understand how you could want, how you could walk around a Latin square being driven by alphabetic characters. And so we had, there was a, a bunch of really good and interesting questions that will sort of be a, a nice uh, wrap on last week's uh, disclosure. I wanted to let people know I'm working on what I call an ultra-high entropy pseudo-random number generator because the one I've got in there now, it's a really good cryptographic pseudo-random number generator, but it's just based on AES Rheindahl. Uh, as we know, you can generate really high-quality pseudo-random numbers just by using a, a, a keyed symmetric cipher driven by a counter, meaning that the counter is uh, AES is a 128-bit block. So you have a 128-bit binary counter, which you simply run through AES um, or any other really good symmetric cipher, and out comes garbage, gibberish. I mean, yes, you could run it the other way and get the counter value back, but it doesn't matter. Every time you increment the counter, you're going to get a a really a, a next very high quality set of bits. The problem is that if we used the the maximum key size for AES, which is 256, we have 256 bits for key, and we have a 128-bit counter which means together the sum of those is, what, 384. So the total entropy, the total amount of randomness that that pseudo-random number generator has is 384 bits. They just aren't any more than that because the, you know, the, the way it's generating the numbers are from the 256-bit key and the 128-bit counter. So... While that's good for almost every purpose in the world, it's not good for the off the grid because we know that there are so many Latin squares that it's on the order of 2 to the 1,418. Yeah. So, so, so what I, uh, and, and I, I've always known this, and I knew that I had to replace the, the, this PRNG, the pseudo-random number generator, because if you have AES generating your random numbers to, to produce this grid, and the generator only has 384 possible bits of entropy, you can't produce all the possible grids. Now, yes, you can produce more than we will ever possibly use 
in the, you know, probably multiple universe lifetimes, but I want to be able to get to them all. And you can't get to them all with a three, with a, a PRNG that only has 384 bits of entropy. So I'm developing one which uh, has 1,536 bits of entropy, wow. which is to say... Th this might well, be of use in, 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 in many things. Oh, it's very cool. Yes. Is this in JavaScript? Very... How, what are you writing it in? JavaScript. Yeah. Um, I hope got, you release got... this to the world because I think a good random number generator is, is worth its weight in gold. Well, it's ba I, you know, again, only fools develop random number generators by themselves. <laughs> so I'm no fool. Um, this is based on some really good technology, which uh, has been developed, and I've got links. But you're not in, using and, RND in JavaScript, obviously. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. But but absolutely, I'm I I will have the source code uh, heavily commented and available. I'll be turning it over to the denizens of GRC's think tank news group uh, probably later today or maybe tomorrow at the latest, because. Um, I, the first thing I want it done is pounded on. I want right. these guys to suck out as you know a huge block of random numbers and apply it yeah. against, for example, yeah. the diehard uh, standard suite of random number generators. And by the way, uh, the core technology of this is was designed by the guy who designed the diehard uh, random number generating tests. So it's got a lot of good technology behind it. But yeah, Leo, it is it is ultra high entropy. It it the cycle time the time between it cycling back now in the case of of any counter driven PRNG like I was talking about a Rindahl cipher well we know what the count what, what the cycle time is because we're feeding a 128 bit count in so it's two to the 128 this thing it, it, it is gonna is like two to the 32 times. Something or other. I remember what the equation was. I haven't worked it out yet because it's like it'll just I mean, that's we really don't need the the a long cycle time. But I wanted to be able to to be able to say that that potentially just a ridiculously vast number of Latin squares can be produced because we have a pseudo random number generator that has that many bits of entropy and you need that many that are going to be set in a in a in a random uh, state in order to access all of those potential Latin squares. So Great. it's cool. Yeah, really. and a bunch of people noted that Becky Worley did a very nice piece on her upgrade your life series on Yahoo News uh, on password haystacks. Oh, neat. Yeah, it's a very nice piece. Wow, that's great. See, there's, there, there's, you see, Becky has an advantage. She's actually somewhat technical. I don't think any yep. reporter in, in any other sphere would yeah. understand at all what, what the idea of padding the password is and all of that. But she gets yeah, it. Yeah, in fact, yes, she does. And she went, she, she went so far as to change some of my examples. Just, I don't know, for whatever reason, she didn't want to, didn't want to plagiarize. But, you know, she changed them and kept them all correct. So oh, that's she, she did understand she all it. of what was yeah. going on. Doesn't and just me. a little follow-up bit of a rata, uh, Stan Robbins in Mendota Heights, Minnesota, commented about Firefox 5 and 6 and Catmouse. Remember that I was – I had I just minutes before the podcast two weeks ago, I realized the reason my scroll wheel – 
wasn't working on the mouse was that it, under Firefox 5 that I think I was at, on at the time, now I'm on 6, it was, it's, I discovered it was scrolling a different tab. <laughs> well, and so he wrote, Steve, you probably already know this by now, and I did discover this independently. He said, but if a PDF, if a PDF is open as a tab using a PDF reader plugin, the scrolling message via cat mouse goes to that tab close all open pdf tabs huh. and scrolling will work normally on the tab that then has the focus this is a bug that might never get fixed because the firefox bug reporting system is pretty lame he says okay well i i, I didn't say that but you know stan does but anyway uh the good news is we know that firefox will be soon rendering pdfs themselves and i will ha happily celebrate that day um, and finally, the um, as we commented last week, Leo, when I gave our listeners in real time the link to that cool little $29.95, I mean $29.95 um, embedded Cortex M3 development. Sold board. it right out instantly. Instant, instantly sold out. Yeah. So um, I contacted the site, the the folks there and said, "Hey, I'm the I'm the guy who's responsible for you instantly selling out of all those." And actually, I know that's true because I've been aware of it for months, and they're not selling any. Yeah. Uh, I bought four initially, and then no more sold. And then people were tweeting me after I first mentioned it, and almost one for one, tweet for tweet, um, they I would notice that their their stock would drop after somebody would receive the link that I sent. Of course, I remembered to tell everybody last week, instantly they're out. Yeah. The good news is, from these guys, they told me they're getting 50 units back in stock on September 3rd. Oh, great. So they will be back in stock. If you, if you can't wait, DigiKey and Mauser both also carry it and have them in stock. Uh, but I really like these guys at LPC Tools. So oh. they will be back in stock there. You know, I forgot to mention that um, at our grand opening party uh, on the 21st that uh, Stina, Stina Everard of uh, Yubikey came to our party. It was so nice to see her. You couldn't be there, but she was there. And we talked about Yubico and all the great things they're doing. They're really, um, what a nice company. What a nice person she yeah, is. And, well, and she, she's moved. She's on the peninsula She's now. local. She's, yeah, she's and, in Northern California. And, and, and what I didn't know about this whole thing uh, is that there is a kind of subversive point to this. To, she's a do-gooder. She's more than a technologist. Oh, I'm glad you, she did have spend some time with she's you. She's trying yes. to change the world, and I think that, you know, it, for the better. I think that's just really neat. So, so yes. a, a good person, good company, great technology. And, yeah, I was glad to get some time to talk to Stina. Yep. yep. So uh, just real quickly, we uh, this was uh, um, a little bl quick blurb about Spinrite that was posted in the news groups, in the, in the news.feedback news group. And so that's why... Ed says, Steve, I'm not sure this is the correct place to post this. Apologies if not. And he said, today I had my first opportunity to put Spinrite through its paces. He says, Perens, I've owned a license for a couple of years now. When my girlfriend's laptop went belly up. This was particularly unfortunate timing as she is just completing a course, the exams on Tuesday, and she was facing the possibility of losing all her course notes plus access to the software she needed to to revise and prepare for the exam. 
Needless to say, Spinrite worked beautifully and everything is back as it should be. So a massive thanks from both of us. Signed, Ed Metcalf. Very nice. And thank you, Ed, for yet again another Spinrite success story. So briefly, before we uh, continue on to our questions and answers, we got a bunch of them. And uh, as you said, a lot of them talking about this uh, crypto system, you, the paper crypto system you came up with uh, last week. I'd like to mention our friends at uh, Netflix who are really the source for me of nonstop entertainment goodness for an amazing price, $7.99 a month. You could get Netflix streaming for less than 8 bucks a month, unlimited movies, and they play on your iPhone, your iPad, 24 different Android devices, including tablets, uh, your Mac and PC, of course. Uh, they play back on um, a lot of devices connected to your TV, including if you have a late-model Blu-ray player, PS3, Xbox 360 or Nintendo Wii connected to the TV. In fact, the Roku is my favorite way to watch Netflix. I have Rokus on all my TVs, and, of course, Netflix is on there. In fact, many new TVs have Netflix as well. What's great is I, just, I don't have to plan my entertainment. I just come home, and then I go right here, and I scroll through the Netflix uh, menus. And I guarantee you there's something for everyone every night, whether it's a great TV show, whether it's, it's music or documentaries, Movies, both classics and brand new. Great kids stuff, too. So you never have to, you know, if you've got kids and you've got an iPad, you're set. You've got entertainment forever. I want you to give it a try. $7.99 a month, but you can get it for free for 30 days by visiting Netflix.com slash twit. Netflix.com slash twit. And I'll tell you what, if you already have a Netflix account and you don't need this, please tell a friend. Tell a family member, let them know that uh, that Netflix is available for free for 30 days for them. I think they'll really thank you. They'll really like this. I'm just such a big fan. Uh, you know, every time I do this ad, I see stuff. Oh, I want to watch that. Poltergeist, I haven't seen that in ages. They're here. Netflix.com slash twit. All right, Steve, I am ready if you are with uh, questions for the master. Yeah, yeah. Betcha. Questions you've pulled together, I might add. Uh, so we won't be we won't be stumping Steve on any of these. Well, maybe not anyway. Starting with Christopher Anger Anger A N G E R E R Angerer in Zurich, Switzerland, who writes he's asking about adding some salt to the grid for more than just seasoning. Steve and Leo, just listened to your latest episode, 315. Love the idea of walking through a Latin square. By the way, you got to listen to 315, our last episode, to find out more about this. According to the domain name and constructing the passwords on the fly, depending on the path you're taking. My concern is that you effectively change the password security factor from something you know to the single factor, something you have, that piece of paper. He's right. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is something you have is much easier to steal or copy from you than something you know. Well, so see, he's not exactly right. If an attacker, such as a work colleague, spouse, or friend, simply copies your grid, then they can easily reproduce all of your passwords without you ever knowing. The problem, of course, is that your algorithm of how to use the grid is well known. Therefore, I suggest you should add some sort of salt to your algorithm. This could be a password that you prepend or append to the domain name in the first phase kind of like a password haystacks there. Uh, uh, or it could be some secret change in the algorithm when constructing a password such as 
uh, instead of overshooting two characters, you always, you personally, in your own way, always go up four, left three, down one, and then <laughs> take the characters from there. Salting adds the something you know factor back to your scheme. It'll, of course, not be as secure as a computer-backed hash. For example, if the attacker gets hold of your grid and a handful of generated passwords in clear text, she could probably reconstruct your salt. However, I think salting still makes the generated passwords much more secure for social engineering attacks. Love your show, Christoph. Well, he got something out of this that I didn't get. Do, do people know your algorithm automatically? I mean, isn't... Well, well, they know the algorithm. That is... There is... We, an, we, yeah, the two-over thing. Well, yeah, we assume, and all good crypto does assume, that the algorithm is not secret. So, for example, that's the way we've got... Uh, smart security people um, checking AES, looking for weaknesses and, and, and checking hashes and things. So the, the, the concept is that the, the algorithm is public and the key that you're using for encryption is private. Well, in this case, the key is, this, is the, con the configuration of the specific Latin square which the user has has generated and is using as theirs. And as we were just saying, there's so many of them that there's, you just can't brute force that. Um, but he's certainly right that, uh, and exactly as you reacted, Leo, we've gone from something you know to something you have. So I'll restate again that my goal was to, to offer something better than pe what people were using now. And... And my feeling is that because this offers a per-domain password, which even those of us who say that's what we're doing, we're probably fudging a little bit on that. I mean, it's just impossible to have a per-domain password for all the different places we go. You know, just to post some random nonsense to a blog somewhere, you know, I, you know there may be like a... A, a standby, easier password for things you don't need to protect. So again, my the the goal here was to offer something sort of simple and fun, which people would actually use. Because of course, security technology that is not used doesn't provide any security at all. So you know, it's it is, and many people, I should say, many of our listeners observed that. Gee, this meant that if someone stole your grid. They had all your passwords. And it's like, yes. So you know that don't lose that's your a, grid. <laughs> don't, don't lose your grid. But or, you know, keep it your wallet and so right, forth. Now, right. Christoph is right, though, that that I would encourage people to do something custom, do something of, of, of their own. They could tack on, prepend or or append some some password haystack style stuff. Which is which does not come from the grid, so nobody who had the grid would know. The weakness there is that if someone saw one of your passwords with that tacked on, then they might guess what was going on. That is like what your salting was. So it's a little better maybe to stick it in the middle or to and to to, to maybe you know feel comfortable with evolving the algorithm a little bit i worked for i went for something simple and usable if you'd like a little more security you could you know do something different i mean basically one of the things i like about this whole off the grid tech this whole technology is that it's just a it's it's a template it's a it's a 
a very secure Latin square that you can use in all kinds of ways. So you could definitely, for example, for example, instead of overshooting and taking the two characters after, you could take the one before and the one after or whatever. So, yes, by all means, listeners should feel free to innovate on top of this underlying technology and you would get some more security against your your grid falling into someone's hands if that happened. Steve Gowen in Northridge, California, wonders about compromised passwords. Thanks, Steve, for all the hard work. I intend to implement this for all of my website logins. But one question, uh, though, what happens if one of my passwords is compromised? Uh, Would I need then to create a new password for that site? The two most obvious, or actually he would obviously need to create a new password. The most obvious solution first, I could keep a list of all the sites uh, that have been compromised and use a different starting point to generate a new password. Because he needs a new password, he's still got the same domain. Right. Uh, the second option would be to create a different grid and use that. Uh, both have drawbacks. Uh, there'd be a, a need to keep track of what sites he'd used the original algorithm and original grid, what sites he'd used the new starting point or new grid. What, what do you have for me? If, if, if I have to change a password on a site, what do you recommend? Well, okay, a couple things. Um, it uh, it has been observed that just starting at a different place in the grid will give you a completely different password. So, so for example, in the normal mode, we would have people starting on the top line, and oh, and I should say that's another way of of, of creating an effective salt is you could start somewhere else always then on the top line, or you could switch to, to, to looking up the first character in a row of your choice rather than in a, um, I'm, I'm sorry, in a column of your choice rather than along a row. So, and there's, so there's, since, since we have, it's a 26 by 26 grid, we've got 52 possible rows and columns where you could look up your first character. But this is handy for people who need an alternative password or, for example, where Policy requires that you change your password occasionally. Um, any of the systems that, that, that always hash the same domain name into the same hash have a problem that they're unable to do anything else. So this off-the-grid approach does give you the flexibility. So it's one, of the, it's one of the things I like about it being on paper, for example, is you could make some notes on the back that, you know, this domain... Uh, uh, my normal starting place was compromised, so I'm 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 using my backup starting place for you know the following domains, and it's one of the reasons that the technology I'm in the process of finishing that allows people to reprint their grids anytime is is something I think is important because you can imagine over some length of time the back of your grid might get messy with you know erasures and crossouts and so forth, and so being able to Print a new one and then copy over only the 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 delta information, the little changes that you've had to make over time allows you to sort of keep a, a nice grid and keep it neat. I don't think throwing out your entire grid makes sense. Of course, that would obsolete all of the passwords that was based on the on the first grid. And having two seems a little bit of a of an annoyance too. It's maybe you could argue a little more secure to have a second one, but 
but then you got to, as, as, as Steve mentions, you know, you have to keep track of, of which one you're using where. So I just think starting, you know, altering your own algorithm some way and then making a note that that's, that, that, that's what you've done. And of course, you could also not, you could sort of just have a, a standard backup. And if you generate the password for a domain you haven't been at for a while and it doesn't work, the act of it failing might jog your memory. It's like, oh, that's right. Ah, this yeah. one uses, if you know. If that doesn't work, plan three over or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it goes to plan B. Right. And so then it's like, ah, oh, then it works. I do that all the time. Yes, I, <laughs> I do too, as a matter of fact. Leo. Uh, let's see. Moving along to question three from Rick Schurz. <laughs> I'm not doing well on the on the names today. Rick Schurz. It, through no fault of your own. They're, they're, they're tough names. <laughs> Sorry, Rick. He wonders about an option to decouple the output from the Latin square. Steve, I thoroughly enjoyed watching your OTG explanation on Security Now. Uh, I've made multiple attempts in the past to create something similar to this, but my attempts always turned out to be too complex or too trivial, either side of the coin there. I've heard of Latin squares before, and now I feel like an idiot for not coming up with this idea myself. I would add one more thing, because as you said, you can't be too paranoid. Instead of taking the output letters from the grid, you could also add other independent symbols between the navigation cells and use those as output. For example, between each two square navigation cells, there's a rectangular half cell, say, containing two symbols, uh, let's say a red and a green one. When overshooting the cell with a matching letter, you take one red symbol from the first half cell, you jump over and the green symbol from the second. This would totally decouple the password output from the input as the output symbols are independently generated without the Latin square constraints and also make it easier to mix in some digits and symbols instead of having to scan all the way to the edge of the grid for those, as you suggest. And of course, you'd have to print the grid a bit bigger in order for, for room to exist for those extra symbols, and this addition may be too complex for some users, but it would be nice to have something like this as an option in the final program, hint, hint. I'm definitely going to write some code on my own to experiment with this and see if enhancements like the example above are feasible. Okay, so um, it's a great idea, and... That was my original idea, oh. in fact. Um, if you, <clears throat> for those who are uh, looking at the video, Leo, if you go to grc.com slash OTG slash 26x26 hyphen PPC <laughs> dot PNG. All right. Let's pop that thing up. Holy cow. This has got reds and greens in it, as he suggested. Well, okay. So uh, the PPC stands for Personal Paper Cipher, which was my original working name before I, I came up with Off the Grid, which I really like so much. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so there's a 26 by 26, and if you just change it to 13 by 13, you'll see an alternative. This, this went through many stages of evolution while I was working to come up with a like the right compromise between ease of use and security, but if you but you can see from that twenty six by twenty six grid, essentially the idea was we take the standard twenty six by twenty six Latin square and interleave columns of complete random characters, and so exactly is that as what Rick the green says, columns are on this image? 
Um, or the I white think, columns? I think the green are the Latin square. What's all lowercase? Uh, the green. Okay, so it's green. Yeah. Okay, so green yeah, is so, the actual square, the traditional OTG square, and then you've added in the, in the white rows, you've added randomness. Exactly. So the idea would be you use the Latin square as we do now for the navigation, but then you but the output characters you don't take from the Latin square itself. You take those from the the intervening. And I think maybe I was going to go like on one on each side. So take the left hand character and the right hand character right. On, that, that fall on either side of the of the target Latin square character. Now, these are truly random because I see, for instance, in the, the middle column, there's three uppercase E's. There's no attempt to make it unique like a Latin square. Exactly. Okay. And that's, you know, that's strength because the, and, and now Rick's it's truly point, random. Yes, is that an attacker would have absolutely no information about your Latin square because you're giving none of the Latin square away. You're, generating characters just you know that, that that are physically associated with it the prop okay so there are a couple problems first of all what do you do if you get one of these annoying websites that won't let you use special characters and they're out there there's a surprising number where you you still cannot you only can use alphabetic and a digit and and right, not special right. characters so so then I thought, okay, well, you know, we could remove the special characters, but there are even some that won't let you use digits. So I thought, well, they could just, you know, if you run across one of those, you could just skip it, blah, blah, blah. The pro but the biggest problem is, as you said when you looked at it, it's like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> it's, it's big. It's, we're, yeah, we're, we use the fact that letters are taller than they are wide in order to keep the thing from being like, really wide so it's scrunched down a little bit but it's still it's twice as much information that we've crammed into this grid and and but here was the key was with the group in the think tank news group and there are some really smart crypto oriented people who hang out there that that we've had we had great conversations and we carefully looked at what was the nature of the leakage, this, this, what I call the structural leakage that, that, it, that does come out of the grid every time you use it? Because any attacker would know that there would be the character of the domain name, which we assume they know, and then the two characters that you output, the so-called overshoot characters, would be right next to it, given that you're, nor you're using the normal default algorithm that we we talked about last week so yes that does leak a three character sequence that occurs somewhere in the grid but i i looked at it long and hard before i made the determination that that, that there just isn't useful structure that the idea would be you would you would apply constraints those constraints to the to a grid generator which would then be responsible for generating candidate grids which obeyed the constraints of all these little triples that you got. But And this is where the insanity of the number of possible Latin squares comes to our aid. There are so many of them. You know, again, I, I, it's like 9.333 times 10 to the 436 or something. I mean, that's just <laughs> a ridiculous number. 
And so what I was able to show was that, sure, even if an attacker had a bunch of your domain name and matching passwords and had all of the triples from those and applied them to constraints on the grid, there, there's still too much that's left unknown and, un, and that you are forced to brute force. So each one, each little bit of information does leak a little, but there's just there's so much to be leaked that you really are secure. And an attacker having a whole bunch of your passwords and matching domain, domain names, I mean, that's a weird attack scenario anyway. I mean, we want to understand what, what the, the, um, the consequences are, but it's unlikely that it's ha- unlikely. that happens. Yeah. Uh, I mean, otherwise you've got some other sort of serious gotta, problem yeah. somewhere. Well, that's like all the attacks that require people have access to your hardware. I don't worry about those so much because so much right. can be done if they have access to all your passwords. You've got other right. problems. Uh, right. Question. So, f- well, so, go ahead. Anyway, I just want to say Rick's point is right. I mean, and I did want to let people know I went there and looked there. The, and, the, and the two links to those PNG images are in uh, the notes on the site, if anyone's curious. If you actually go through and read all the text, you'll, I, I do address that issue. Great. Brent Nesbitt wonders if off the grid goes both ways. <laughs> <laughs> is it possible to decipher a message if you have the grid that was used to encipher it? If so, what's the process? Okay. This is such a neat question. I am posing it to our listeners. A stumper. Does, can you, and under what conditions, can you decrypt from the password back to the domain name? It's, I mean, it's, it's a perfect little puzzle for everyone to think about. I so like I'm it. Not, I'm not going to answer Brent's question. I'm going to say, well, what does everybody think? And how would people respond to you? Go to grc.com slash feedback. Is that what you'd recommend? Yeah. 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 Or tweet. Or tweet. At GRC, yeah. that's Steve's. Uh, Steve's at handle. SGGRC. I'm sorry, at SGGRC, that's Steve's handle. Good. Can you go both ways? Yes. Will, can you, given a password, what do you have enough information to to figure out what the domain name was? Mm-hmm. And uh, because, you know, you can find those, you know, the, the, we know that the password is character pairs that occur in either horizontal or vertical relationship to each other. Yeah. And then you'd see the other character pair. And so one's going to be horizontal. The other's going to be vertical. And, you know, it's, a, it's wonderful to think about. So I'm going to let our listeners think about it. Think about that. Think about that. Think about it. Billy Spelchin. Billy D. Spelchin has been thinking about how the Latin squares are generated. When I was watching your Latin square generator working, which is fun. Turn that on. It slows it down, but it's so fun to watch it go... Uh, I noticed that you generate the rows randomly. I'm assuming you're using the data from the above rows to determine valid letters, then randomly choosing from those. When you run into a non-solvable cell, you then backstep. And you'll see that sometimes. go And try with different letters. And it makes just that sound, Leo. You almost hear it. And this is just because you're doing it by brute force, right? You're not being smart about it. You're just going, let's make it work. And it's fast enough that it's fine. Uh, In fact, you you probably do use a more powerful algorithm, I would guess, to just do it. Oh, yep. Yeah. Um, But I like it that people think about this stuff. 
Yeah. Would it be, wouldn't it be easier to create a basic? Each row shifted over one Latin square and then do a few dozen iterations of randomly swapping each row with another random row and each column with another random column. So you've solved it in one direction and then you swap it around. This would be easy to recreate if you used a cipher and a sequence of numbers for getting the random numbers for the rows and columns to be swapped. I'd love it if you explained your choice and uh, and uh, choice of and design of Latin square generation algorithms. And actually, you didn't really talk about how you did it, you know, in the fast technique. No, nope, I didn't. Um, okay, so the algorithm, and I will have. I'm going to release the source code to all of this as soon as I get it finished. Uh, there's been a, a bunch of people asking if they could implement it in little utilities and apps and smartphones and and I, which just delights me so absolutely i'm going to encourage that and i will help that effort by by letting people all have my well commented javascript source as soon as i get it done i didn't want to let people run off half cocked before i'm finished because i'm still making like in the case of this ultra high entropy pseudo random number generator which is you know the key of being able to recreate these things um, I'm still making some changes, so I've I've got the code stripped of comments and and obfuscated um, just while I'm getting it finished. Um, the, I I'm really pleased with the algorithm. So think about think about going across, filling in the first row of the Latin square for the very first character. It could be any one of the 26 characters of the alphabet. The second one could be any one of the 26 except the one we already have because we can't have two on the same line. The third one could be any of the remaining 23. And the fourth one, any of the remaining 22 and so on. So as we move across, we um, what, what the algorithm does, and I the implementation came out really nicely because I use... I use bitmaps to represent the characters which have been used so far. So as we're moving horizontally from left to right, I'm keeping track of the characters that have been used behind us on that line and then selecting at random. And so there's the key, selecting at random from the set of remaining possible characters we haven't yet used on that line. So the first line, zip, I mean, nothing ever stops us. We just go right across, and in some random sequence, we lay out all the 26 characters of the alphabet. But now we're on the second line. So the first cell of the second line has to consider what's above because it, we can't have any duplicates down that, down that column, that first column. So I, I also have bitmaps, which I maintain for all of the columns. And, and this is where bitmaps are so cool because I'm able to and the, the, the current rows bitmap with the current columns bitmap in order to get the instantly get that subset, which doesn't appear even, either in the column so far, so so far, or in the row so far, so now we move along again, doing what we were before, but also considering making sure that that we don't have a collision of anything above us. 
And even there, it is possible that we could make a wrong, that our, randomly we would have chosen something where we would use a character on the line at, 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 at a, um, incorrectly, which, where we really need that character to be used later and a different character that would have been left over later used earlier. So what happens is it, gets to the, it can get to the point where it's, try, it's on a cell and it does this, or it, it does the anding of the two bitmaps, and it's zero. That is, there are no available characters, which, due to the choices we've made before, which don't occur that we haven't already used either in the row um, behind us or the column above us. In which case, we backtrack. So this this algorithm is a is a pseudo randomly driven. Um, backtracking tree search because we're searching through a tree of possible Latin squares. And when we backtrack, we remember what didn't work. So that, so that the, the, uh, when we back up a cell, a, a memory is kept of the choice we made that time. And we know since we're coming back, there's no solution downstream of that choice. So we, so that choice is, is removed, and the pseudorandom number generator is asked if we've got any more available characters. And that's the way this proceeds. So it just it works its way down line by line. And, of course, as we get down further, it becomes increasingly difficult, which is why you'll see the, the generator just cruises along without much trouble at all, toward the beginning of the square, but around about halfway down, it starts choking a little bit because it's got so many characters above it in each row. And so it's, it can't, it knows it can't choose any of those. And as it's also having, as you'd expect, more trouble toward the end of the lines because it's got more characters that it's already chosen behind it that it can't choose ahead of it. And, um, and the other really interesting thing is the last line is a freebie. If you think about it, every character in the last line is predetermined because it's all of the characters that didn't occur in the column above that cell. So that one we get for free. Um, one of the things that I noticed, though, and I, I mean, I watched this thing obsessively for quite a while, and it was tricky to get it to run as fast as it does, actually. I had it it's running at 13 by 13, and for a while I was thinking I was going to use a 13 by th 13 Latin square and just double up characters in each cell in order to keep the grid size down. And then expanding it to a larger one, it, was, it became tough to, to get it to run fast enough. Um, and I, I did expand it up because I just wanted all of that entropy that a full 26 by 26 Latin square has. What I noticed was that sometimes it could make a mistake early in the line. It could choose a character like in the fifth cell from the left as it's moving from left to right, which is wrong. Yet it could go way downstream down that line 
and just never be able to solve that line. It would just, and essentially it would be backtracking, choosing a different character, and then trying to move forward again, backtrack again, choose a different one, then go back even further <laughs> because that, I mean, it was a, the, the point was I realized an early mistake could take us a long time to recover from. So the, the, there's two modes in my generator, which you can choose on the website, uh, watch it work or get it done. The watch it work uses the algorithm I was just talking about for, um, uh, for generating the square that, but it can get stuck and take a long time. It's kind of cool when it does, because you can see it like changing its mind and, and, and doing what it can. The, the just get it done is a different a different strategy that I had developed from watching it get stuck otherwise. And that is the first instant that this thing has to backtrack, it just scraps all the work on that uh-huh. line. It, it starts, starts the line. Yes. Uh-huh. And for whatever reason, I mean, and actually when you think about it, for it to be able to fill out a Latin square as easily as it does, it never, for example, goes back up into earlier lines. It has the ability to do that. It can backtrack all the way back out to the beginning if it had to. But the fact that it never has to go back up to a prior line means that that there's always a solution downstream, which gives you some sense for how many Latin squares there must be (laughs) if it's always able to work itself out. So anyway, that's the algorithm. Now, Billy suggested something very clever, which was think about a – here's a trivial Latin square. Um, Let's just think of it as maybe a 10 by 10, and we'll use digits. So zero through nine. We we, We fill the first row with zero through nine. Then we fill the second row, shift it over. So we start with nine, then zero through eight. And the third row, we shift again. So it's eight, nine, and zero through seven. Well, if you keep doing that, think about it. You've just made a Latin square, a trivial one. Because obviously all the lines are going to be okay because they're all only zero through nine. There's no attempt to repeat there. And you've automatically fixed the rows because that skew means that you'll, you, you know, there'll be a different digit automatically in every column space. So as Billy says, that's a simple Latin square. Then we already know that swapping rows and swapping columns never breaks the Latinness of a Latin square. If you think about it, if you swap rows, well, you, the, the rows are all going to still be fine and the, and the, um, the, the, the columns will be fine because you're, because you're, you're, you're not creating any duplicates that didn't exist before. So that kind of random transposition of rows or columns always is safe to do to a Latin square. Well, that is the genesis of the Latin squares workbench. And in fact, I, and in the podcast last week, I said Latin square.htm. That is grc.com slash Latin square. And I think it's plural. So some people tweeted they couldn't find Latin square.htm. It should be Latin squares.htm. And that's this little workbench that I wrote also in JavaScript to familiarize myself with manipulating Latin squares. My original concept was 
boy, it's exactly as Billy suggested. It would be so easy to generate Latin squares that way. And in fact, one of the, rather than randomly exchanging them, what I would have done in a more robust crypto standpoint would have been once I had that simple rotated or shifted rows Latin square, then I would have taken another, like a blank Latin square and randomly chosen one of the rows and stuck it in the first row of the new one, randomly chosen one of the remaining rows in the original one and stuck it in the second row of the new one and so forth. What that means is, what that says is that I could choose any one of 26 rows in the first one to be the first row of the second. Any of the remaining 25 from the first one to be the second row of the second and so forth. Meaning that there are 26 factorial ways of rearranging the rows on a 26 by 26 grid. Similarly, there are 26 factorial ways of rearranging the columns. So what that says is that there's 26 factorial squared arrangements, which is a huge number. But it turns out you cannot get to all Latin squares that way. It's huge, but it's not huge enough for us. It's not wow. all possible Latin squares. It turns out that there are there are there I think they're called um paratopy sets. Uh the the Latin the Wikipedia page on Latin squares discusses this where these are these are like closed sets of Latin squares which which are large but they're disjoint from other Latin squares. So you cannot get between any two Latin squares just by swapping rows and columns. And that I proved, I wanted to see that for myself and develop a feel for it. So I wrote that Latin squares workbench to actually play with swapping rows and columns. And that's what that is. That, 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 that page on GRC, uh, latinsquares.htm, allows you to like, with your mouse, click on rows and columns or even click on symbols and swap them and experiment with, you know, different configurations. So anyway... I wanted, you know, me, I wanted, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it once and do it right. And so having an insanely high entropy pseudo-random number generator that potentially lets us get to at least as many Latin squares as we know exist uh, is the solution that, uh, that we'll have shortly. Very cool. Really neat. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Moving along to question six. Drew Monrad wonders about the off-the-grid source code. Ah. I am just starting to take a look at iOS programming. I thought I, I, I'd like to try something related to your OTG, uh, make an interesting starting challenge. I think that would be neat to have an iPhone app uh, out of this. I don't know how much I'll be able to get done. Are you able to share your JavaScript coding? This would let me concentrate on the Objective-C side of the project. This is more of a personal challenge than an attempt to release a new app. But if it turns out to be worth sharing, I'd consult with you before publishing anything with Apple. Thank you. Yeah, and so I say to to Drew and all of our listeners, um, yes, absolutely. I'm going to let everyone have the source code for this as soon as I get it done. And frankly, I love the idea yeah. of turning this into some smartphone and, you know, like little standalone utilities because what that lets us do then is we kind of get the best of both worlds. We, we, we could keep the our grid in a drawer or mm -hmm. in our wallet 
as the as the master paper backup reference. So we we would we would ne- we could generate a password with zero technology if we wanted to. Yet if we had a little app, it would make it much easier to just type in A M A Z O N and bloop, there's our twelve our twelve character matching password. So we have a piece of technology that makes it easy, but with the caveat that if it's online, if it's in your phone, I mean it's potentially vulnerable to to being compromised. But with with that with the understanding of that trade-off, then uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a cool little project, and I will happily provide all the source <laughs> to help people make that happen. Very kind of you. And the truth is, uh, even though it's obfuscated uh, JavaScript, uh, it's fairly easy to use tools to get that source code. But I'd rather see Steve's commented source code than anything else. Obviously, yeah. I had somebody sent me a note who said that he looked at at my JavaScript. I think it must have not been this project because I think it must have been something else I had done because. I think only one file is currently non-obfuscated. And he said, Steve, he says, I hardly even needed to read the code. Your comments were so good. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I, I learned the lesson a long time ago. To, I, you know, I write this stuff for myself mostly because I know I'll put it down. I won't come back to it for a decade. And then I'll be thinking, what the heck was I thinking? <laughs> well, if you're an assembly language programmer, commenting is essential. Yeah. I mean, you really learn that, I think, for a set. But, I mean, it is for every programming, but, you know, assembly language, you, who knows? Well, actually, these algorithms will, that, that Latin square finder, it's, people who enjoy code will love looking yeah. at it because yeah. it's the, the way I implemented it with these bitmaps, it's like there's almost nothing there. It's like, wait a minute, where's the code? I mean, that little blob generates Latin squares? It's like, yeah, it ended up being really good. Yeah, so that's I'm, neat. I'm, that's excellent. I'm proud of it. Yay. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. Uh, question uh, seven is from Justin Lowmaster at thespaceturtle.com. It's important in Oregon. Uh, and he has a special case for uh, what we were talking about. Just why would you need WAN administration on a router? Just turn it off. Steve, regarding yep. the universal plug-and-play, UPnP exposure, and WAN side administration, when I was dating my – he puts that in quotes. I don't know why. When I was dating my now wife, she lived all the way across the country and three hours later in time zones. Oh, that's why. That's why. That was sort of not much of a date. Dating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As the night wore on, her internet performance would get flaky and drop, needing a reboot of the router. Well, obviously, they were heating up the router a little bit. Unfortunately, the router was located in an area that would cause her <laughs> cause her parents to get annoyed if she left her room to go reset it. My mind. I'm sorry. It's just bad. Yeah, okay. That's Leo. <clears throat> I got her to turn on WAN administration, but only allowed for my IP and any malicious people who knew a workaround, but I was young and in love. Uh, this, <laughs> this allowed me to remotely log into her router and reset it without waking mom and dad. And soon she'd be back online and we getting back to uh, chatting. It might not, not have been the most secure thing to do, but I certainly think it was worth the risk. <laughs> Now, if I could only find a way to remotely log into our two kids and adjust their auto-sleep timers on them. Isn't that cute? That is adorable. He's doing a very strange smiley face that I don't really... Yeah. I don't understand. Maybe maybe, he must uh, have a mustache or something. I don't know. Oh, maybe that's what... Maybe the chat room could explain uh, what what this is here. What is that? What is that? It's a brace. It's a brace... I guess I guess the colon is his eyes, so he's got colon. hair. He's wearing and a Mexican eyes. hat and a beard. <laughs> oh, that's what it is. He's wearing okay. He's wearing a sombrero. Uh, he's he's going oh, 
and he has a beard. Okay. Or else he's got a really big nose and he's sticking out his tongue. But those are the two choices. Love the show. Own Spinrite. Recommend it to anyone who says hard drive. I'm still young and in love, but I have safer routing settings now. Well, he's right. That would be a, a use case, so to speak. So um, I did want to mention that a number of people suggested that the reason universal plug and play was open on routers is for ISP administration. Yeah. Huh. And it's like, oh, goodness. Mm. Okay. Um, I, uh, mm. Again, it's such a horrible security exposure. Now, what he did, which is limiting access by IP, is actually very good. It's, you know, it's, it's still, you know, a little nerve-wracking to have something that could listen. But as we will learn next week in our... How the Internet Works continuing series, this time on TCP, the, the transmission control protocol, um, bl- filtering by IP uh, is very good because it, it nobody coming from any other IP or even spoofing his would be able to access his router, assuming that it was over TCP, and that's important. Universal plug-and-play is a UDP protocol, and it is possible to spoof that um, source IP so that the packets would appear to be coming from, for example, Justin. However, if the protocol, that is the UPnP protocol itself, required some transaction, some interaction, then the router would send them back to Justin, that is to the to the apparent source IP, not back to the attacker. So again, the attacker would, would be um, unable to do what they wanted unless a single packet was able to accomplish their, their nefarious purposes, in which case UDP could have its source IP spoofed. But otherwise... It's it's pretty secure, and I did want to note that um, to remind people again to shut down WAN side UPnP administration. And if your ISP says, "Well, we need you to turn it on so we can get in there," it's like, "Well, then turn it on for that purpose, but then turn it off again." You just don't want to fly with it uh, open, or or fly with an open with, fly with your with your <laughs> open fly. Yeah, right. I was thinking the same thing, Leo. <laughs> I, I, uh, There's okay. a joke there somewhere. I just too slow uh, to pick up on it. Number eight, Kayo. Katayama in Hyannis, Massachusetts, corrects you about LPC Expresso's IDE. Steve, just wanted to let you know that the LPC Expresso IDE does not support Mac OS, Windows, and Linux only. I thought that was important. So I had said last week, Windows, Mac, and Linux, and I just assumed that if they were doing Linux, they would have, you know, done Mac first. Well, you said it was Eclipse, right? Yeah. Well, Eclipse works on the Mac. Okay, so maybe it's possible to make it happen. They may just not offer it by default. Yeah, they. I mean, they may. I could see they might have an SDK that doesn't work on the Mac. That's probably what it is. Is that whatever the software development kit is doesn't work on the Mac? But I, I it's all it's all just C though. It's all just C library stuff. So it's generic maybe C. It, you know maybe if if someone has it running if or is is able to run Eclipse on their Mac, they'll be able to do this too. I've run Eclipse on my Mac many times. I still do. It's how you do the. Uh, uh, Android development, but uh, but it does use USB, so there will be a USB driver. Mm, probably you might need a USB which, driver, but that's not a big yeah. deal. I, I think that's doable. Uh, I think you could figure it out. The other thing is to make sure. Sometimes people run up against this. The Mac uh, does not install its developer tools by default, which means you won't have a C compiler on the Mac. 
So that could be that maybe he needs those uh, that, and that's on your install. I think it brings GCC along with it, though. I think uh, Eclipse has GCC. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Okay, well, take your word for it. Something to look into. I did want to alert listeners that maybe not the Mac. Right. Uh, Scott Mazer in Colorado Springs wonders how many Steve during your off the grid podcast you mentioned that nobody knows how many Latin squares. There are that are greater than 11 by 11 because it's just impossible to compute. Later on, you went to say that there are at least 9.337 times 10 to the 426th possibilities for 26 by 26. If you can't tell how many there are by 12 by 12, how can you tell for 26 by 26? I'm just curious. How do you do it, Steve? What you looking at? I was looking around for the book because I bought a very expensive, huge... Uh, combinatorial math book. Oh my God! Be- you are so. <laughs> at, the, at, the at the beginning of this, because I wanted to understand this stuff too. Right. And I absolutely can't. Um, the, uh, so what? Here's what I know. And Wikipedia again has a, a nice coverage of this, but not the derivation of the math. And that it was by following the links that I found the textbook and I plowed into the textbook. And I got in a few pages, and I just thought, oh, okay. And then a miracle happened, and here was the result. Um, the, what we know is there is a formula which has been arrived at, which I show on the off-the-grid pages at GRC, which where mathematicians that have studied this, and it's, it's I mean, the Latin squares have really intrigued mathematicians powerfully i can see for, why it's fascinating yeah yeah it really is interesting it's a Something, simple concept that's got you know incredible combinatorial issues and powers and so forth and and look how exact, much we love sudoku which is just a special case of this so you yes. know yeah yeah um and, and 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 as you said leo that's a perfect way of phrasing it it's so simple to say not have anything repeat in any row or column right. i got you it know? that's easy but then <laughs> then look what happens. What what falls out of that is, you know, many, many grids will have duplicates. Some won't. And so the natural question is, well, okay, how many don't? <laughs> well, it just there is we don't even in this day and age have the math for for describing it. But they the mathematicians have watched the way that they've looked at simpler squares and worked to understand why simpler, you know, smaller Latin squares? How they function, and and what you know, what 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 can be known about the smaller ones? And they've arrived at two different formulas. One which says we know that there are fewer than this many, and another formula that says we know there are more than that many. And th- it's that second formula. We know that there are more than that many. They, they've been able to say we we've been able to prove that a certain n by n Latin square will have at least this many, and so there's a floor that they've been able to establish, and that's the number I've been using. That's that nine point three 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 or three three seven or something times ten to the four hundred and thirty six, which the log two of that that is the 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 number the equivalent number of bits is 1,418. So 2 to the 1,418, we know there are 
probably way more than that many, but at least that many. And I thought, okay, that's enough. That'll be <laughs> okay. That'll be. That's all I need. Yeah, because I mean, consider that most of the crypto we're dealing with is 128 bits, right? And so this is 1418, and the 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 pseudo random number generator that I'll have soon is generating is working from an entropy pool of 1536. So, yeah, we're okay. <laughs> so anyway, we don't know how many. We just know that the mathematician gods tell us it's it's a lot at least. It's a lot. It's it's more. It's so much ridiculously more than we will ever need. Right. And but that's that's where we get security because even though this is leaking a little bit of structure, it turns out that there's just too even even limiting them in half or in, I mean like even hugely limiting them down to a few percent. Even a few percent is still ridiculously <laughs> impossible right. for a bad guy to, to brute force. Right. And that's the key. <laughs> that's the key. Walter, I'm sorry, Willem, John, let me do it right. We have such an international audience. I love this. Willem Jan Geritsen in the Netherlands is chafing under his company-enforced password policy. Steve, in our company, we have an enforced password policy, such as every eight weeks we have to uh, change the main password. Uh, it can't contain your username. It must contain digits, upper and lower case, and non-alphabetic characters. And it has to be at least eight characters long, all of which sounds like good password policy. But since we have to change it so often, almost everybody is using an incremental number in his password. Oy. So they're having the first name, last name, and then 46, 47, 48. What I learned from your Haystack story is that a long password is what really helps. And eight isn't very long, is it? How does a password refresh policy make passwords stronger? I suspect it just drives people to put it on paper on their desk. In fact, this has been a whole discussion. Micro, I think it was Bill Gates who brought this up, who said the problem with strong passwords is people write them down and put them on Post-it notes. Well, and I have to say there was an article floated around a couple of weeks ago that that someone was claiming that in in a survey that was done that in corporations the IT people were the most disliked. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I hate to And say this it. is why, Leo. Yeah. This I, I I have to agree with Willem. I do not see a benefit if you for example have a stronger password policy like not, uh, come on, at least eight characters, as you said. That's eight. just not long enough. Yeah. We need 12. It'd be better to have 16. You know, come up with, with you know, like, give everybody a password school, as we do here on the podcast. Explain to them what's necessary. Choose a really good password once and something you don't have to write down so you don't have to worry about it being stolen. I mean, I don't, I don't get this change it every eight weeks. That doesn't fit the model of exploitation. It's not as if... Passwords are traveling by camel after they've been stolen <laughs> going to the bad guys. And so there's like some weird eight-week window, uh, you know, like, oh, right. we're going to change your password so that, you know, the 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 stale password no longer works. Well, pass passwords are used instantly. Sometimes they're used on the fly and, you know, but between keystrokes, they they escape and they go beamed off somewhere else. And then someone's logging in as you in immediately. So this I don't get this change it every week. And I, all this does is is make I.T. people despised because users who are not dumb, they think, why am I? Ha why do I have to do this? 
you know, what problem is this solving? And when, when you, you know, when you make people take their shoes off to get on an airplane, you, all you do is, you know, that, that doesn't have any clear security benefit. You just upset people. And this nonsense of forcing people to change their passwords continually is exa- exactly like that. Yeah. So I agree completely. I don't see any benefit to it. You know, have a good policy and just let people, you know, come up with a, a password that they can stay with. Otherwise, uh, it's just, you're just asking for trouble, I think. Our last question, I think. Yes? 11. Yep. yep. James Higgins. Know, it's, an odd, it's, it's an odd number, but then it's prime, Leo. And it's I'm prime, and we love that. <laughs> yeah. He's big into primes. Uh, James Higgins in Gadsden, Alabama. He's worried about the uh, UPNP vulnerability we discussed. Stephen Leo, I can't say I'm a longtime listener. I've only been listening for the last few months, but I love the show. Good, because you know there's like, how many? Plenty, plenty more. You, 315 previous episodes. You have plenty of listening ahead. Um, I was listening to 315, and the part about UPNP really caught my attention. I'm, I'm just wanting to confirm if this is firmware-related or something involving a piece of hardware. reason I ask is that I, like many other listeners, use one of the open-source firmwares, DDWRT, being my poison of preference. I like that, too. Can you please confirm where this vulnerability lies in these routers? And thanks for the great show. It is absolutely in the firmware meaning that DDWRT does not have this problem. Good to know. So if you took a Linux router, which does... A Linux, I'm sorry. If a Linksys, a Cisco Linksys router... Well, ironically, running is, Linux, so you're all right there, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which does have UPnP exposed, and you reflash the firmware with DDWRT to, you know, give it a much beefier nicer feature powerful router then this problem goes away in the process right right just as james was hoping yeah i love it tomato 2 those are both great router firmware you have to have the hardware that the firmware works on just like putting a rom a custom rom on your phone you have to make sure that they match but if you've got the router that does it right as my mom says the linksies (laughs) you have the linksies router <laughs> hey Steve, always fun, always in- informative. Uh, just love the show, and uh, I'm glad we got so many questions about uh, OTG because I think it's just really a great, um, fascinating subject and a, and a neat technology. Well, I'm just glad that it's out there. Now it exists. It's simple to understand. People get a kick out of it, and we have a paper-based cipher. I just wanted there to be one because yeah. I looked around and there just no one had done one. So. And now we did, and I stumbled on the idea of the Latin square as a means of maneuvering and creating state so that you end up having a dependence of, of, of among everything that's come before. Um, you know, so it solves the criteria of, of being a, a useful paper-based cipher. Um, I'll get the pages finished and updated and then uh, on to my next project. And in next week, speaking of which, we're going to, as I have said, Plow into TCP. I don't think we'll be able to do the whole thing in a single podcast. TCP, there's so much going on there, and it is so cool that it's probably going to be worth giving just that one protocol, which happens to be the most used protocol on the Internet. Um, It's due. And by the way, we have a stumper. We're asking if you can figure out, is OTG off the grid, is that magic square reversible? Can you decipher as well as n-cipher using steve's otg grids 
And uh, you can mail your answer, email your answer. Well, just go to the website, grc.com slash feedback, and fill out the form with your suggestions. Chat room already says they know. Well, <laughs> if you're so smart, Ninja Hacker, if you're so smart, just uh, tell us, send a note to Steve and tell us why. Ninja Hacker says, I know. Steve, thank you so much. We do this show every... Now that we're back on schedule, Steve's back home. We do it every Wednesday, uh, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern at live.twit.tv. You can watch, of course, live. Love it if you do. I don't have to say live.twit.tv anymore, by the way, with the new web design. Uh, just twit.tv. There is, I don't know what happens if you go to live anymore, but it's just oh, twit.tv. Yay. Live's right on the front page there. Just click the watch live button. But you'll also see there the Security Now link, and you can go to the Security Now page and get all the previous, all 315 previous episodes in this one, too. Now, Steve maintains an archive of low bandwidth versions, 16 kilobit versions, as well as full typed out transcripts by a human. So that's another resource, and that's all at grc.com. While you're there, check out Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility. It's Steve's bread and butter, so let's support Steve by all buying a copy of Spinrite. What do you say? GRC. And, um, I did want to mention that the off-the-grid section has its own feedback page, which a lot of people have been using, and that helps me because it does then uh, segregate the off-the-grid related feedback from the, the, the general Security Now feedback. So Security Now feedback is grc.com slash feedback. But the, if you go into the off-the-grid pages, you will see a send us feedback link. And there's a special little form there just for off-the-grid. And it comes into a different email account for me and allows me to, um, to see those coming in. That's great. That's great. grc.com. It's all there, my friends. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Security now.